0: In private, when Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah, as Stephanie read for us earlier, David responds with two words in Hebrew. It's six words in English. In private, David utters two words, but in public, he writes a poem, and he broadcasts it to the world. I want you to notice the disparity in that. We are very quick to confess with many words in private our sins, but we rarely talk about them in public. David shows us the complete reverse of that. Second, If I were to ask you, what is David's greatest victory? Those of you who grew up in church, David's victory, you know the life of King David. He lived 3,000 years ago. What, if you haven't been to church in a while or didn't grow up in the church, then you have heard, nevertheless, probably of David, King David. What was David's greatest victory? What would you say if I asked you that question? Intuitively, you, just like me, would say, Goliath. But I, I want you to know that Goliath is not David's greatest victory. Together with scholars, I want you to hear that great David's greatest victory is Psalm 51. Confessing his transgression, admitting his need, Third word of admonition before I read the text for us. It's tempting for us to say, oh yeah, I know, I've seen this text a thousand times before, I know, it's not not for me. I am concerned as your pastor that you will say something like this when I read this passage. I've heard this before. I love the song, God Be Merciful to Me. We just sang it. It's about Psalm 51. This psalm is about the adulterers and about the murderers. It's not for me. Listen. It's about you. And it's about me. It's about the adulterer that you are and that I am. It's about the murderer that you are and I am. It's about the racist that you are and I am. It's about the angry person that you are and I am. This psalm is about you. Please do not project it upon your neighbor. And finally... I want you to hear that David gives this to us with an intent. He says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I want you to imagine the enormous capital a king would have to spend to write out a public confession like you're about to hear and then hand it to the choir master of Israel and say, here, put it to music and we're gonna sing it. David lived 3,000 years ago and we still remember him, with all due respect, many of you are very successful businessmen, successful mothers, successful fathers, very talented people, but I dare say that few, if any of us, are gonna be remembered in 3,000 years, and if David could sin like he sinned and be restored to a right relationship with his heavenly father, you can too. You've never sinned beyond the bounds of God's grace. So stand with me, if you will, and hear Psalm 51 as though you had never heard it before. This is the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. In the chilly, wintry, blistery winter of 1929 to 1930, a man named Werner Frostman took a cr- profound risk, and in his courage, in his act, probably saved the lives of some of you who are sitting here this morning. He catheterized his own heart. That is, he took a small tube, a catheter, put it in his forearm, and with fluoroscopy, guided it up the veins through his arm into his chest, and it entered his right atrium. He catheterized his own heart, people. And in 1956, he, along with someone else who took it further, received the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. And his courageous act brought benefit to the entire world for all of our well-being And today, it is arguable that a heart catheterization is one of the most common procedures that are performed in hospitals around the world. I want to submit to you this morning that Psalm 51, David is doing a self-catheterization of his own heart. Not physically, but spiritually. Not to the benefit of medicine, but to the benefit of all of the people of God. Psalm 51 is David's greatest moment. It is the time when the king of Israel confesses his sin with bold-faced honesty for the benefit of all of Israel to sing. And he is doing this with great intent, because he says to you in verse 13, I want to teach transgressors your ways. He's like a good mother or father. You know, moms and dads, when we're teaching our young children what to do, we give them words to say, don't we? Say, I'm sorry. And they say, I'm sorry. David here is putting words in your mouth to train you how to be honest. And he's asking a question. How does God take a hardened and hiding heart and crush it and cleanse it and create it by grace? That's the point of Psalm 51. That God takes a hardened and hiding heart and he crushes it and he cleanses it and he recreates it by his grace. So let's look at it together. First, how does God do that? How does God crush, cleanse, and create a hardened and hiding heart? How does he do it? And then how do you know if he's doing it in you? Those are the two questions we're gonna go after. First, how does God do it? I want you to notice if you lower your eyes to your bulletin, look at the text if you have your Bibles open or your app. 18 times David requests something of God. Have mercy on me, one. Blot out my transgressions, two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin, three, four. Purge me, five. Wash me. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide, not your, face, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities, on and on and on. 18 times David makes requests to God. How does God... Take our hardened and hiding hearts and crush them and cleanse them and recreate them. He takes your hardened and hiding hearts and he crushes it, he cleanses it, and he creates it. Because everything that David asks, all 18 requests in this psalm, the Father either denied or did the exact opposite to Jesus. Let me just take a couple of them for you. Have mercy. Even though Jesus had done nothing wrong, God withheld his mercy and he gave him justice. God didn't give Jesus mercy so that he could extend mercy to David. Blot out my sins. Again, Jesus had done nothing wrong. But the sin that we have, that we have done, was put on Jesus so that God would blot out not Jesus's sin, but his life so that he could blot out your sin. Washing and cleansing, instead of washing and cleansing Jesus of all the trespasses and iniquity and sin, all of our iniquity, trespasses and sin was placed on him. God sank his face into the muck and the mire of our sin so that you might be cleansed and made white as snow. The Father took his face and put it into the sin of your mediocre thoughts and everything you've ever thought in animosity to Jesus, pushed his face into it. Instead of Jesus hearing joy and gladness, the same joy and gladness that Jesus had heard for all eternity in the Holy Trinity, Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he heard dead silence. So that you, in your sin and in your brokenness, through your repentance, might hear your father say to you, hear joy and rejoice because I've embraced you. Because I turned my back against my own son for you. God didn't crush Jesus' bones. He left them all intact and said he crushed his glory so that the crushed bones of David might dance, and you might too. The Father cast Jesus out so that he might welcome you in. He closed Jesus' lips so that he might open yours. Friends, that is the gospel. That is how you are to read all of the Psalms, but especially Psalm 51. How does God take a hardened and hiding heart and crush it and cleanse it and recreate it by grace. He put all of your sin on Jesus. And once you understand that, at least in your mind, then you'll be able to assess whether the fruit of that is actually true in your life. How do you know if God has done that in your heart? he's taken your hardened and hiding heart? How do you know if he's crushed it? How do you know if he is cleansing it? How do you know if he's recreating it by grace? Well, David shows us. We turn away from specific sin. Step one. We rejoice in our return from exile. Step two. We take responsibility for our place in God's kingdom. Step three. I want to look at those three things together. If God has put all of our sin onto Jesus and the upshot, the refraction of that gospel is that we have to ask ourselves, is that true in your heart? Number one, do you turn from specific sin? Will you truly repent? Repentance is a relic in the Western church. Confession is weird today. It feels weird for some of you even coming to Trinity to confess your sins out loud. Why do we do that every week? Because we are training each other, I need it just as bad as you do, to learn how to confess and be honest. We have so long masked our real need that we give lip service, that we cover up the depth of our sin. But you can't ever cleanse a house of termites until you get the termites out. You relay the joists. You reframe the house. That's what confession does for us. David, the great king, the giver, the king, knows that he needs to receive something. And what he needs to receive is repentance, which is a gift, Acts 5.31 tells us. As much as forgiveness is a gift, repentance is a gift. How do you know if you're truly repentant? How do you know if you've turned around? Number one, your sin personally bothers you look at verses 1 to 3 you can hear it bothering David have mercy on me O God according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me you can you can hear it bothering him my 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 me Five times in Hebrew, he refers to his sin. It's as though David is owning up to Nathan's rebuke and saying, I, 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 I am the man who took the young ewe you from the poor man. It's me. For nine to 12 months, David's sin didn't bother him. His conscience wasn't scathed. And now it begins to bother him. When David called Bathsheba into his house, please hear me, he probably didn't think he was being a sinner. He probably thought he was being a lover. He was being a man in need. And when he killed Uriah the Hittite, he probably didn't think he was being a murderer, he was being a king a general, and they put people in harm's way all the time. When you yell at your kids, you probably don't think that you're sinning. When you slip away to look at porn, it doesn't bother anybody. You justify to yourself. When you hear about things like you just saw on Thursday in Dallas, you say, huh, man, it must really be awful to be a racist. You check your heart. Because I am capable of everything that man did, and so are you. Your sin has to personally bother you. David hid. His heart was hardened for 9 to 12 months are you hiding? Will we yell at our kids? Well, listen, I'm the authority of the house. I'm, this is justified. When we slip off to look at a little pornography, well, it's not, it doesn't hurt anybody, it's just personal. When we disparage other people and we do not love our neighbors as ourselves we justify it in our minds. Listen, if you're in leadership in your company, you know what this is like. Because sometimes in leadership, David had to have felt this, I think. When you're in leadership, you know that there are some times when you're just trying to help people. And sometimes the very people that you're trying to help turn on you. And they say, well, you're not doing it right. You're not doing a good job. And you're pouring your life out to them. Hear me, deacons. Please hear me, elders. Please hear me, everyone. And you just rationalize in your heart, life is hard. I just need a break. And so you have a drink and another and another and you get drunk. And you begin to rationalize it. You begin to grow more and more self-absorbed in your self-pity. And you're fighting for relief. And you take a good thing and you turn it into an ultimate thing. And it begins to own you. David's sin began to personally bother him. And friends, listen to me. I want to say this very carefully. When you hear about issues like what happened on Thursday in Dallas, and you read about all of the racial discord in our nation today, please do not be indifferent to that. That is part of how we got here. Check your heart. your self-righteousness, your smugness. Because some of us just want to run and hide. I mean, I, have to, I just wanted to just disappear. I actually could. I was on vacation. It was great. Let somebody else deal with this. But as Christians, we can't do that. It is our job to say before the watching world, we are the chief of sinners. And to begin to not be indifferent to those who are different than us, but to move toward them in friendship and love to people on your row and to people across your street, to people across town. Notice it's not just very personal, but David is also very precise about his sin. Notice the words that he uses for his act. Transgression, verse 3. Sin. Sin verse three. Iniquity, verse two. The first one, transgression, meant to cross a boundary. It's, I I know that there are laws, but I'm a king and I need a break. The second one, iniquity, means to distort or to twist something. David says, I took my power and I twisted it. I took human sexuality and I twisted it. I took marriage vows and I twisted it. Sin means to miss the mark or to fall short. Father, you mean for us as your people to be so much more than self indulgent, self protecting, self pitying, sinful people. Friends, our sin is personal and it is also very precise. Do you see it? It takes courage. The third thing David teaches us about. Growing in repentance is it's not just personal, it's not just precise, but it is present. Verse three, my sin is ever before me. This is a hyperbole. It's not like his sin is physically before him. It's a figure of speech. But he means that his sin is always on his mind. He can't get around it. He keeps bumping into it. There's a friend named, uh, of mine, he's a pastor named Joe Novenson, who was incredibly helpful for me in thinking about Psalm 51 this week. And he gives an illustration of his own hands, when he was a young man, Joe worked in a meatpacking plant, and his hands got caught in a grater. And in his terror, he reached in to grab, he'd pull his hand out, and his other one got caught too. So that today he has no feeling in his hands, very little feeling in his fingers. And he has had over time to recognize that he has a disability, that he has to not just recognize, but he has to steward it. Because if you have Thanksgiving in the Novenson home, it is dangerous because he will take a piping hot plate and just hand it to his children. And his children have learned to say, Dad, 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 take it back! Because he'll burn them with his hands who have no feeling in them. Your sin is not a physical disability, it's a spiritual one. And you think that it's only yours personally. It is not. You have to learn to steward your iniquities and your sin and your trespasses. Like Joe Novenson has to steward his hands carrying hot plates at Thanksgiving dinner. And you steward those through repentance. It's personal. It's precise that it's ever present before you. The issues in Dallas have raised for us, the issues in Falcon Heights, the issues in Baton Rouge, they have raised for us our need to re-examine ourselves, especially in the suburban community with regard to the way we interact with people of different ethnicities and races. And I just wanna help you hold out this sin to make it ever present before you, that there are indeed two Americas today I have to wrestle with the fact that I have never, every time I've gotten pulled over by a police officer, I've gotten pulled over because I deserved it. There are some people who get pulled over because they didn't deserve it, just because of the color of their skin. And we have to recognize, even though we may not have directly been complicit in it, we have opportunity with this before us, ever before us in the public media, to assess our hearts and to take responsibility for it. And not to be indifferent to it, but to run to our friends, white, black, brown, red, whoever they may be, and embrace them and know them. It is very hard in Owasso, Oklahoma, isn't it? It's very hard, very hard, because we are predominantly white in Owasso. But the opportunity that is ever present before us right now is for us to recognize if that is just a fact or if it's a manipulated context for us. Do you live in fear or do you just happen to live in a circumstance in an environment? I just wanna encourage you as a church. This week, Will Parker and Krista Long and I went to a breakfast at Presence Theater And one of the greatest memories I have of our church was when we worshiped in Presence Theaters. They're the only primarily, predominantly black congregation in town. And I loved it. It was awesome. And we need to foster those relationships. Because their version of America is very different than yours. And we need to learn about that. And that might be a good context for us to... Be able to confess to the Lord, oh have mercy on me. Into my diatribe. Your sin is personal, it is precise, it is ever present. Notice David also says that his sin is principally and, prim- and primally a sin against God. When David confesses his sin in verse 4 and 5, he says, against you. In Hebrew, it's against you yourself. In Hebrew, when you want to repeat something, there's not an exclamation point. You repeat it. Against you yourself have I sinned. He's not saying that he didn't hurt Bathsheba. He did not hurt Uriah's family or the child that died. Rather, this is an only, not of precise exclusion, as though only God had been offended. But it is one of primary importance. Before I ever ended up in her arms, I had already committed spiritual adultery. I love someone else's arms more than God's. And this was so important to me, David says, that I would even kill a man to cover it up. He sees the enormity of his cosmic treason against the Lord. Doesn't just affect God, but it primarily and principally does. Against you and you only have I sinned. Can you say that? How do you turn from your sin? You recognize that it's personal, it's precise, it's ever-present, that it's principally and primarily against God, and you have to acknowledge your need for cleansing. In verse 4 it says... Um, in verse seven rather, purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. In Leviticus four and Numbers 19, please stay with me. The priests would take a hyssop branch and they would dip it into the carcass of a dead animal and they would sprinkle it to cleanse things or people so that they would be clean in the sacrificial system of ancient Israel. And here David is saying, not do away with the sacrificial system. David is saying, against the contrast of the sacrificial system, Oh, Lord, I need a sacrifice for my sin. There could not be a sharper straight edge for David to contrast his sin against. He knows that he deserves to be this slaughtered carcass, and yet we know as Christians today that it was Jesus who was slaughtered for us. Do you know that your sin is personal? Do you claim it as your own? Is it precise in your confession? Is it ever present for you? Do you recognize that it's principally and primarily against God? And do you acknowledge your need for cleansing? That's how you know that you're growing in repentance. How are you doing? God takes your hardened and hiding heart and He crushes it, He cleanses it, and He recreates it by grace. How is He doing that in you? Now, We don't only need to turn from our sin, but we also need to rejoice in our return from exile. In verse 8, you hear David crying out for songs of joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness. This is captivity language. In exile or in Babylon or in Egypt... Whenever Israel would, was released from exile, they would return to Jerusalem and they would sing songs of ascent. They would rejoice because they have been freed from their exile. Some of you have repented of your sin, but you do not rejoice in your exile. You have this kind of melancholy, beat yourself up, continue to flagellate yourself about your sin. You won't let it go. Okay, I've repented. Yes. Until you can rejoice in the grace of God pronounced over you, you've not repented. Until you know that you've been freed from exile, that you can be able to come back into God's covenant community. Do you imagine, can you imagine that people who have been missing for 70 years in exile, people who were, remained in Jerusalem, when they saw the exiles coming back, can you imagine the songs that they sang for people they hadn't seen in 70 years? They're back. Their arms would be wide open and they would embrace them and they would sing because nothing else can be said. Is that how you welcome sinners to Trinity? You ought to sing when each other shows up on Sunday morning. You're back. Welcome. There's no safer place to be than the home of sinners like you and like me as the old hymn says. We need to hear joy and gladness. David also acknowledges that God crushed him. The bones that you have broken, rejoice. He doesn't say the bones that my sin crushed, the bones that my bad habits crushed. He says the bones that you crushed. And it teaches us something. That if you find yourself in the arms of anything else other than Jesus, if you take a good thing and you begin to worship it as an ultimate thing, if you begin to find your sense of security, your sense of self-worth, your sense of pride, your sense of glory, your sense of hope, and anything but Christ, God loves you so much that he will take that thing and he will crush it so that you will know that the only righteousness you have is the righteousness of Jesus. And he's crushing some things in your life That's a sign of his love. Because he takes a hardened and hiding heart and rather than leave it on his own, he crushes it and he cleanses it and he recreates it by grace. Created me a pure heart, verse 10. This is creation language. I don't need you to teach me these things. I need you to remake me, David says. The return of exile for the ancient people of Israel was kind of like a new creation for them. They were returning to the promised land. When we become Christians, it is though Jesus gives you the title of son and daughter. You have a new deed to your name, a new name pronounced over you. A new adoption papers have been signed, and you're his. Walk in it. Believe it created me a new heart. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is not saying that you can lose your salvation. This is kingly royal language that when David was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him with power or the ESV, it rushed upon him. And that God's spirit rested upon him as it did with Moses, as it did with Joshua, as it did with others in the Old Testament and the prophets. And David is saying, oh, please, you've called me to be king. Let me finish out my kingly reign. Do not take your kingdom away from me. Let me finish it out. Oh, Father, when I'm angry at my kids, call me to repentance. Let me stand firm in my sin and confess it to my children and ask their forgiveness after I've asked it of you. Oh, Father, when I slip away to indulge where nobody knows, oh, Lord, please do not let me do that. Bring that sin into the light. And confess it. Third, remember, how does God take a hardened and hiding heart and crush it, cleanse it, recreate it by grace? He places all of David's requests and he denied Jesus or he gave him the opposite. How do you know if that's true in your life? You turn from your sin. Secondly, you rejoice that you've been freed from exile. And lastly, you take responsibility for your place in God's kingdom. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is saying that for 9 to 12 months, he was so self-absorbed and so unself-aware that he could not acknowledge his sin. And if you're hiding right now, you know how hard it is. You're constantly covering your tracks. You're constantly making sure that you're keeping up the image, it's exhausting. And this Psalm says to you, come to the foot of the cross and bring that sin into the light and find the arms of Jesus open wide for you and take responsibility for your sin. And having confessed it, take responsibility for your place in God's kingdom. When you get the gospel, when you're able to bring your sin into the light, something happens to your language. You're freed up. You talk about it because for so long you kept it quiet. And once you experience the grace of God in a new and a profound way, you can't be silent about it. There's something new about you. The way you talk so freely and so candidly about sin, it makes you a little uncomfortable, makes other people a little uncomfortable because they're vulnerable in a way that's different than the rest of our subculture. There's something so amazingly beautifully evangelistic for you because you don't hide behind 14 commentaries when you read scripture. You allow the gospel to bring to bear your need for the gospel of grace, even though you've been a Christian for decades. You sing. David said at the very end, would you build up the walls of Jerusalem again? David is saying, Lord, would you take my little kingdom and would you crush it so that I can build yours up? Would you take all of my self-absorption, all of my I, 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 me, 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 and would you help me to say your, 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 yours and others? Would you build up the walls of your kingdom? Would you do that for your glory's sake? Friends, we have an amazing opportunity right now in history because of the conversations that are beginning about race and our need for reconciliation, and because of your own personal experience with your sin, you have an amazing opportunity this morning, to see the fruit of repentance in your own life by turning from your sin, walking the other way from it, by rejoicing that you've been freed from your exile and no longer beating yourself up about that sin, but resting that Jesus is your only righteousness and taking responsibility taking responsibility to build up the kingdom in Owasso and Tulsa and Bartlesville and Skytook and Claremore and Collinsville and all of Northeast Oklahoma. That is the clarion call for Christians. And it begins by us being able to have the courage to broadcast to the world, have mercy on us. We are sinners. Holy Spirit, Would you catheterize our hearts? Would you help us to be people of profound courage so that we may proclaim your glory in Oklahoma and to the nations? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.